You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. My name is JD, and this is my co-host, Isha. Shortly after emancipation, former slaves took out harrowing newspaper adverts to find their lost family. However, Rose Herrera's case makes her fairly unique. Her former owners had kidnapped her children to Cuba. Today, Professor Adam Rotman, who spent a significant amount of time chronicling Rose Herrera's quest, joins us to talk about his book, Beyond Freedom's Reach. telling people about your background you got your PhD in Columbia yeah I got my PhD in American history from Columbia and uh, then went on to teach at Georgetown University and that's where I've been for the last 18 years and um, you are doing a very interesting project having to do with Georgetown University Um, you want to quickly mention it yeah sure Um, I was part of Georgetown University's working group on slavery, memory, and reconciliation, which met in the 2015-2016 academic year. And we were basically charged by the president of the university to explore the university's historical involvement in slavery and make recommendations to the university about how we could sort of come to grips with that past. Um, and so we made a series of recommendations to the, to the president at the end of that academic year. And ever since then, I've been deeply involved mostly in just basic historical research into the relationship between the university, the Maryland Jesuits that we were connected to, and slavery. And it's been really fascinating. Um, So from what I recall um, from looking at your database, like one of the Catholic or Jesuit priests had slaves, right? Well, the whole order of the Jesuits in Maryland uh, held slaves. Um, it's, It's really a striking example of religious institutions deeply invested in slaveholding in uh, North America. In fact, the Jesuits were slaveholders across the Atlantic world, but the Maryland Jesuits became slaveholders in the early 1700s as the Chesapeake made a transition from indentured servitude to slavery. And by by the time of the American Revolution, by the time of the founding of Georgetown, the Maryland Jesuits were one of the larger uh, slave owners in the state of Maryland. They had almost 300 enslaved people uh, that they owned. Wow. Um, and and what, was, what, what exactly did you find as Georgetown's, uh, the university's uh, investment, not investment, usage of slavery? Right. So uh, it's, a very, it's a very complicated um, and multifaceted relationship, and one that really shows all of the ways that early American colleges and universities were involved in slavery. So in the first place, um, George, the Georgetown College was, was part of the Jesuits' 
might call it um, religious economy. So the Jesuits had several plantations across Maryland, and the idea was that the profits of those plantations that used enslaved people as workers, the profits from those plantations would help subsidize the churches and schools operated by the Jesuits, including Georgetown. So in other words, the idea was that white Catholic boys would attend Georgetown, essentially subsidized by slave labor. So that's one kind of relationship. Then there, we also know that there were enslaved people who worked on Georgetown's campus. They were carpenters and um, cooks and servants and uh, nurses. Um, so all kinds of domestic labor that was performed at the university was performed by enslaved people uh, for the first few decades of the college's existence. Now there's a, there's a pivotal moment uh, in this history in 1838 when the Maryland Jesuits decided basically to get out of the business of slaveholding. They ended up selling uh, around 300 people to two planters in Louisiana. The, and the community that they sold has become known as the GU 272. Uh, some of the proceeds of that sale were then loaned to Georgetown College to help Georgetown pay off debts to creditors. So there's a very direct financial relationship between the college and, and slavery. It's a, a tragic one. Uh, yeah, a few weeks ago we were looking at UVA and they also had a very gory history. Um, so, that, I mean, that's very, and can you please share the website so that people can uh, go check out all the exhibits and documents? Sure, absolutely. The, the archival website is slaveryarchive.georgetown.edu. We have more than 300 uh, documents from different kinds of archives, the Jesuit archives, the Georgetown archives, Maryland State archives, Louisiana archives that, that document this history in really painful detail. But I think one of the interesting things about that archive is it's actually been used by descendants of the people who were sold in 1838 trace their family histories. So that's been uh, one of the more gratifying outcomes of this, uh, of this research. Now, I should, add, I should add that you know, Georgetown, and as you point out, you know, UVA has also been undergoing this kind of process. Georgetown and UVA are not alone. Many colleges and universities that date back to the 19th century and earlier in the United States and elsewhere have historical connections to slavery. There's now um, a consortium called Universities Studying Slavery of more than 50 colleges and universities in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom that are exploring uh, that history. So it's really a collective effort and all of these places I think are learning a lot from what each other is doing. Um, uh, so, um can we, uh, uh, so uh, how did you, uh, for your book, Beyond Freedom Reach, like, how did you come across um, that story? It's a very interesting, very, uh, uh, and it's like very heartbreaking because if, if you think of like a thousand slaves, it doesn't hit you. But if you think of one person and her child, it, 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 it hits you. So how did you come across that when you were doing your research? Yeah, thanks. 
So let me just say that Beyond Freedom's Reach is, is uh, a, about a woman named Rose Herrera, uh, whose children were taken from her by their owner uh, during the Civil War, and uh, they were taken to Cuba. So the book is about that kidnapping and the mother's efforts to recover them out of bondage. So it's what, it's what we call a micro history, this very human scale story of the experience of slavery and emancipation. So how do you come across a story like that? It's really kind of a needle in a haystack or you might also just call it a historian's luck. So I, I have to back up a little bit to explain how I came across it. My, my first book, was called Slave Country. And it was um, a history of the expansion of slavery in the region that became the deep south of the United States, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. And in doing the research for that book and writing that book, I really just fell in love with the history of New Orleans. Just one of the great American cities with an extraordinarily rich um, and complicated history that's rooted in um, the history of slavery. So I decided I was gonna write a book about, uh, about New Orleans. Uh, the rise in, I was gonna write a book about the rise and fall of New Orleans as a global city. So are you, you with me here? Nesha, are you with me? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I know, tell me if I'm, I'm rambling on, but I wanna give you the whole trajectory because I think it's interesting. So I just, I, I want, I, I would love your listeners to sort of understand the process that historians go through to arrive at the books that they, that, you know, that we write. So I was, I wanted to write a book and I was researching a book about New Orleans as a global city. And I was becoming interested in the connections between New Orleans and Havana, which were like sister cities in the middle of the 19th century, both uh, very cosmopolitan cities that were anchors of, um, uh, national and imperial slave economies. So I just was out on a, a data, an electronic database of congressional publications, things that had been published by Congress. And I was searching for documents that had both New Orleans and Havana in the same document. And one of the first things that came up was a report that was published by the Senate in 1866 on, the, uh, on, on rumors that newly freed people were being kidnapped and sold into slavery in, in uh, Cuba in Brazil. And I, that I was astonished because I, even though I had been studying slavery for a couple decades, I had never heard of this. Um, and so my curiosity was piqued and uh, I started reading the report and digging a little bit into it. And it turned out that most of the report was about the case of Rose Herrera and her children. And then I just thought to myself, this is an amazing story, nobody knows it, I need to write about this. And uh, five years later, it became Beyond Freedom's Reach. So that's where that book came from. Amazing. Um, one thing is a lot of people don't have an imagination of the Emancipation Proclamation. So they think it happened and then people magically became free, but it was a process. Could you give them an introduction of like what the process was instead of like the magical thinking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a, I, I do think that there's a lot of magical thinking around the Emancipation Proclamation. That's a, 
a great way to put it. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation is basically a war measure promulgated by, uh, by President Lincoln as commander in chief uh, to help win the war. And it's, it's worded in a very strange way. Basically, the Emancipation Proclamation only frees people who are in territory that was still in the control of the Confederacy. So there are a lot of places in, uh, in the South that uh, on January 1st, 1863, were under the control of the Union Army. And in those places, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, didn't free anybody. It only frees people in territory that was controlled by the Confederacy, which means that at that, at that moment, at that snapshot moment on January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation freed nobody. It was only as the Union Army advanced into Confederate territory that the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect in those places um, where, the Union Army, um, where the Union Army went. So, was, so the Emancipation that was affected by the Emancipation Proclamation unfolded over the next two years of the war and even into uh, the months following the end of the Civil War. That's why many people celebrate, especially many people in the Deep South celebrate this holiday called Juneteenth, which takes place uh, on June 18th, uh, on June 18th, which commemorates the um, sort of the announcement of emancipation in Galveston, Texas, uh, two years, two months rather, after the war had ended. So we need to think about emancipation as a long unfolding process that wasn't accomplished so much by a piece of paper as by the Union Army. Now, all that being said, there's a whole other story about um, how emancipation took place in the places that were left out of the Emancipation Proclamation, including the place where, Nor the place where Rose Herrera lived, New Orleans, which was actually exempted from the Emancipation Proclamation because the Union Army had occupied New Orleans from May of 1862. So we have this interesting situation on January 1st, 1863, the day that Lincoln um, promulgates the Emancipation Proclamation, Rose Herrera is actually in jail in New Orleans on a kind of trumped up charge of assault. And um, it's just this, I, I've always found that to be such a striking contrast that on the, on the day of the Emancipation Proclamation, we find the central sort of heroine of our story, Rose Herrera in jail. Was she a slave at that point? She was. Um, she was technically owned by this couple, um, 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 uh, James and um, Mary DeHart. James DeHart was a dentist in New Orleans and he owned her and he owned her children um, at that point. And I mean, there's a whole backstory here, which I go into the first couple of chapters of the book of how Rose, how Rose ends up uh, owned by the DeHarts in New Orleans uh, during the Civil War, because she had actually been born in a rural parish outside of New Orleans. Her owner had brought her to New Orleans, and then she had actually been sold several times in the churning New Orleans slave market before she ends up in the hands of the DeHart of the DeHarts. But um, when the Civil War breaks out, um, she's their property, and her children are their property. 
so um, and she had the children while she was with the dentist, right? Yeah, um, that's right. The children uh, were very young. Um, uh, she has the um, first child, I think, in 1857, and she has three um, by the time, um, by the middle of the war, by 1863. And so by the law of slavery, the children of um, an enslaved woman become the property of their owner. That's, that's pretty much the, the elemental law of American slavery. And so many, so many implications uh, follow from that, from that rule. One of the implications, for example, is that, um, um, that there are literally no, 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 no fatherly rights. So Rose Herrera was actually married to a free man of color named George Herrera. And the children, you know, as we were to conventionally think about children, they're his children. But his children are owned by the DeHarts. So he has no legal rights over them, even though he's the father and married to their mother. So that's just a very concrete example of a tragedy that took place countless times across the history of American slavery. So I don't think people really understand. Yeah, people don't really understand that free parents could have enslaved children. But I think Rose Herrera's story makes that abundantly clear. What was Dr. DeHart's motivation for taking the children to Cuba? So he, um, so after the Union Army arrives in New Orleans, there's um, a pretty big exodus of Confederate sympathizers from the city. Some of them go elsewhere to Confederate territory. Some of them go to Mexico. Some of them go to Cuba. So DeHart um, goes to Cuba, where he sets himself up as a dentist in Havana. I think he just wanted to, you know, keep, keep plying his trade. He leaves his wife and Rose and her children behind in, in uh, New Orleans. And then um, a few months later, his wife decides to join him in Havana, but she doesn't want to go to Havana without, without, her, without Rose Herrera's children. In fact, she wants Rose to go too, um, but isn't able to persuade her to go. I think the reason why, there are a couple of reasons why the DeHarts wanted to bring Rose Herrera and her children to Havana. Uh, one is because they were their property. And probably the, virtually the only real property that the DeHarts owned. So they were the DeHarts' most valuable assets. And if the DeHarts th thought that the Confederacy would survive the war and slavery would survive the war, I think they expected that someday they would be able to go back to New Orleans with their principal assets, you know, in the bank, as it were. But they also, I think, wanted Rose and her children uh, for their labor. Uh, Rose is a domestic servant, take care of Mary and, and James DeHart's child, and uh, the, the labor of the children, as small as they were, could, could also be useful. So I think they wanted them as assets, and they wanted them as labor. So those are the motivations to take them to, uh, to Havana. You know, there's another possibility, um, which is strange to say, but it's really central to the whole pro-slavery mentality. I think it's likely that the Hearts actually thought the children were better off under their care than under the care of their 
own parents. So that was a central idea that, that slave owners were paternalists, that they, that, um, that they, they could take care of enslaved people better than enslaved people could take care of themselves. So that might have been a kind of psychological motivation um, for them to bring the children to Havana. That makes a lot of sense. Um, now, JD, can you mute your mic? Okay. Um, so they bring them to Havana in, 18, in the middle of 1863. Do I have the timeline right? Um, I'm trying to remember now. I think it's they bring them to Havana at the end. Uh, I think it's um, 1860, it's 1862 or 1863. Um, and Rose, like, how, did, did Rose, Rose stayed back or did she, did you know where her kids were or what? Yes. So basically, basically while Rose is in jail, um, James DeHart's wife takes the children, gets on a boat and sails to Havana, leaving Rose and George Herrera in New Orleans. So I think part of the reason why Rose had been thrown in jail was to give the DeHarts leverage over her so that they could take the children to Havana. So the children go to Havana and Rose gets left behind. Um, and that's the situation for the next couple of years as slavery basically disintegrates for a whole variety of reasons in New Orleans. And so we sort of pick up the story again in early in 1865, before the war ends, although after slavery has been abolished in Louisiana. So Rose has been two years without seeing her kids or knowing their whereabouts. Exactly. Two years without seeing their kids or knowing where they are or what shape they're in. And then Mary DeHart comes back to New Orleans to see her friends early in 1865. And somehow Rose um, finds out that Mary DeHart has come back. And she confronts her and demands the children. Mary DeHart says that, you know, she doesn't have the children, can't bring them back. So Mary, so Rose does something that's really, I think, quite revolutionary, which is she goes to court um, to try to compel Mary DeHart to, um, you know, bring the children back from Havana. So, you know, it's such, it's, I, I think, a lot of people these days really don't understand how revolutionary emancipation was at the time. It's easy, I think, to think that, you know, nothing really changed from slavery to freedom. But I think Rose's case suggests that that wasn't, that wasn't actually true. People experienced it at the time as a revolutionary experience. And the, just the mere fact that Rose could go to court to try to get justice against her former owner was a sign of the times. So I should add here that in the interim, um, George Herrera had died. So Rose is basically a widow, you know, all alone in the world. And yet she still has the gumption to go to court and to try to, you know, try to get justice for herself and her children. Did she have an attorney? She actually did have an attorney. This is, again, one of the really astonishing things about this whole situation. She gets a lawyer. And the lawyer is a really fascinating figure himself. His name is Thomas Jefferson Durant, which is a great name. Durant had been a fairly prominent lawyer in New Orleans before the war, but when the Union Army arrives, he sort of reveals himself to be a kind of closet abolitionist and ends up, by the end of the war, being one of the most radical white Unionists 
in New Orleans, and a real ally of the people of color in New Orleans. And he takes a number of cases um, of the parents of newly freed children to help, you know, help, help defend their rights against their former owners. And he takes Rose's case. They were actually neighbors in New Orleans, which is another striking thing. So he, he and his law firm helped defend her in court. And the, the papers of that law firm are actually at the Library of Congress. Um, and you can, so you can look at the originals yourself, which is uh, one thing I had the pleasure of doing. What happened during the trial? Did Mary DeHart respond or was it, what, 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 was, what happened during the trial? Yeah, well, the first thing that happens, they, so uh, Rose first goes to a civilian court in New Orleans and the civilian courts were basically dominated by Confederate sympathizers. And in the civilian court, the case gets thrown out because there is no law against slave owners taking their human property with them, you know, before abolition. So then, but Rose isn't satisfied uh, with that and neither is her lawyer. And so they, they take the case to a military court because the Union Army still was a presence in New Orleans and the military courts were uh, places where black people could actually um, press for their rights when they couldn't get them in civilian court. So the case is actually heard in a military court known as a provost court. And Rose is able to testify in court, which is something she would not have been able to do before emancipation. And the case is basically thrown into the hands of, of military officers in New Orleans. And finally, the, the military commander in Louisiana, a man named uh, Nathaniel Banks, who is a Massachusetts politician in general, basically decides that, um, that even though Mary DeHart had not broken the letter of the law, he finds that she actually violated the spirit of the Louisiana Slave Code, which prohibited the sale of children under the age of uh, 10 apart from their mothers. This was, <laughs> the irony is that this was a, a provision in the Slave Code that had never been enforced in the history of slavery. So it takes a Union Army official after emancipation to enforce the spirit of the law, if not the letter. So he has Mary Hart, he throws Mary DeHart in jail uh, for violating the spirit of this law and um, basically holds her there on the condition, or holds her there until she's able to get the children brought back from Havana, which she ins insists that she can't, she can't do because she's in jail in New Orleans. So then basically, Another, eventually Banks is replaced by another Union commander who's more sympathetic to Mary DeHart, and he dismisses the case and releases her and tells her to go back to Havana uh, to get the children. So she goes back to Havana, and months pass, and she doesn't appear. So that's, that's the extent of the legal wrangling over the children. So it's a very ambivalent kind of situation, and it shows the sort of instability of justice immediately following emancipation. Was Cuba a slave state around that time? It was. So I think, and this is an important part of the story too, because too often, especially um, you know, those of us who, who live in the United States and study the history of the United States, think that the United States was the only place, uh, the only slave society uh, in the history of the world, but it certainly wasn't. So in the, in the 1860s, there were three 
major slave societies in the Americas, the United States, Cuba, and Brazil. So while slavery is unraveling during the Civil War in the United States, it, it, it's going strong in Cuba and Brazil. So of course, one of the reasons why DeHart brings the children to Cuba is because slavery is not just legal there, but it's, it's very stable. Um, so so he, he moves from one slave society to and how did so how did uh, rose what what did rose do next in regards to getting her children so she she's really dogged i mean she is relentless persistent in trying to get these children back so having pretty much exhausted her legal options she turns to politics and patronage so through her lawyer durant durant starts writing to major republican officials um, in Congress and the State Department um, to, try to, to try to mobilize the government to recover their children. So it ends up uh, in the hands of um, the State Department that mobilizes um, its uh, emissaries in Cuba to try to use diplomatic means to, to get the children back. And that, um, well, I don't know if I should give away the ending of the book because I want people to read it. Um, but um, I guess I'll just say that, again, this is part of the revolution of emancipation, that this really lowly, newly freed woman is able to mobilize the resources of the American government, the diplomatic arm of the government to try to get her children out of slavery in Cuba is really an astonishing uh, really just an astonishing feat. Um, so one thing I want to ask is when the, when the Union Army came in, wh what kind of immediate reforms did they do? Like, and obviously a lot of them were rolled back, but in New Orleans at least. What, mm -hmm. In New Orleans? Yeah, um, it's a very... Um, uh, complicated situation because when the Union Army comes into New Orleans in May of 1862, the Union is not yet committed to a policy of abolition and emancipation. So uh, on one level, the Union Army actually is supposed to uphold the slave system that they find there. And they have to draw, they're forced to draw a distinction between rebels and loyalists. So because of the legal situation in the spring of 1862, they can actually confiscate, that is to say, more or less free the slaves of rebels. But they had to support the, the rights of loyal slaveholders. So, they, so they, they have to draw these fine lines between who's a friend and who's a foe. But that's not good enough for the enslaved people in New Orleans and the surrounding area themselves. They take matters into their own hands. They understand the Union Army to be an army of liberation. So they start running. They start fleeing their, the, the plantations where they live and the homes where they live in New Orleans and going to the camps that were set up by the Union Army. So even though the Union Army is supposed to be upholding slavery, its presence is actually corroding slavery, and the Union, aren't, the union gets into all sorts of, um, it basically ties, himself, ties itself into knots in New Orleans, trying to figure out whose side it's on. Is it on the side of the enslaved people, or is it on, side, is on the side of their 
loyal owners. So it's, it's a really bewildering situation for a lot of people, but the most important thing to understand is that enslaved people themselves seize the opportunity to claim their freedom. And they, they sort of presented themselves to the Union Army um, as a real, a real, a real problem. Sorry, I'm muting my mic to reduce the echo. <laughs> really sorry about that. Um, so, how uh, were there any? Have you heard of uh, like I've seen like advertisements from the 1800s where people were advertising for their uncle or their children or anything like that? Um, was there like anyone who in the last minute tried to I guess? What was their illegal slavery after emancipation? That's a better way to ask it. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say that um, that the fear of re-enslavement was a powerful one for newly freed people. You see it all over the documentary record that they're afraid of being re-enslaved. They're afraid of, for instance, of being kidnapped on the Gulf Coast and being shipped off to Cuba and Brazil. So this report that I mentioned at the, you know, at the beginning about uh, the rumors that newly freed people were being kidnapped and sold off to Cuba and Brazil, um, there's not a whole lot of evidence that that happened, but what there is is a, is a, is a lot of evidence that, that newly freed people were really afraid that this might happen. So the shadow of slavery you know, really lingers through, through abolition and emancipation. And in a variety of ways, you could argue that former slave owners in the, in the Confederacy really tried to, tried to reestablish slavery under a whole series of guises, like apprenticeship or vagrancy laws. They tried to, tried to mobilize the, the carceral system to essentially re-enslave people uh, you know, after 1865 through debt peonage, through really oppressive labor contracts. They tried to, you know, restore slavery in everything but name. That was the basic point of the Black Codes that are enacted by Confederate-dominated state legislatures in 1865 and 1866. But the, the effect of those is actually to produce um, a very radical reaction on the part of the Republicans in Congress who come, come and basically seize the reins of Reconstruction and, make, and, and try to make emancipation a, a reality for newly freed people. So I think, I think what you can say is that there's a real struggle immediately following emancipation over what the terms of freedom were going to be and whether or not that freedom was going to just be, you know, slavery by another name. Uh, yeah, and actually, we still have that with prison labor and things like that. Um, so with, a lot of people don't understand Reconstruction. What did the, when the Republicans took over, what did they establish and, and then what happened? Like how, how did it all roll back? Yeah, well, that's probably the subject for another whole episode. Um, and I, I'm afraid I only have about five more minutes, so I can't do justice to reconstruction. But basically, you know, there's, um, after this initial period where President Johnson is more or less in control of Reconstruction and the Confederates make a kind of conservative uh, comeback immediately following, 18, you know, immediately following the war. 
the the Republicans and especially the um, more uh, democratically inclined Republicans in Congress basically seize control, uh, and they organize the Confederacy organize the Confederacy into military districts under military government, and they impose um, basically a very a very radical set of political reforms on the South, including the enfranchisement of black men, which is truly revolutionary. The radical qualities of reconstruction in the South are essentially nationalized through the 14th and 15th amendments. The 14th amendment establishing birthright citizenship and the 15th amendment uh, um, prohibiting um, the denial of the franchise on the basis of race. So those are really the capstones of radical reconstruction. And we, um, and, and today, you know, those are, those reconstruction amendments are the basis of what a lot of people consider to be the second constitution, second founding of America on an egalitarian basis. Of course, what happens in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s is the evisceration of those amendments through both um, political and legal means, you know, culminating in the very well-known Plessy versus Ferguson case in, 18, in the 1890s, as well as Williams versus Mississippi, which basically rules that all sorts of tricks to dis disenfranchise African-Americans are actually constitutional as long as they're, uh, as long as they're facially race neutral. Oh, okay. Um, since you have only five minutes, is there anything you'd like to add? And can you give people the website? Uh, we'll put it in the description box below, but the website for your book too. Yeah. Um, I think that um, <laughs> to, to sort of sum up, well, first of all, I think that it's really important that people pay attention to the history of slavery and emancipation in the 19th century. I think it seems like a long time ago, uh, more than 100 years ago, a lot of people think, well, what's the significance for our society today? But um, I think there, the significances are just incredibly powerful. I mean, on a, on a psychic level, I think um, uh, racism obviously has its roots in the history of slavery and reconstruction, but also the tools that people use to fight against racism were the fact Foundations for those related to the 19th century, too. And I think looking back at that history can really help us in our own moment uh, for those of us who, who want to battle against racism and for a more egalitarian America. So as with everything, it just pays to understand history. Now, if people want to read just one story, one, you know, one human story of that past, I think Beyond Freedom's Reach is a, you know, a great place to start. Is it, where is it available? Is it available on Amazon and all the other books? Yeah, it's, it's available at Amazon. I would strongly suggest people uh, purchase it through a local independent bookseller if you can. Um, or check it out if you're a student, check it out of your university library. Uh, it's always a good option. Um, I, I will say that uh, I have a website, Beyond Freedom's Reach, where I put the, um, a, a few of the primary sources that I used to write the book, including a petition that Rose um, submitted to the Union Army through her lawyer that basically tells, in her, more or less her own words, her story. So 
Um, I really encourage you to read the book, but I, I would I really hope that people look at those original sources to, to see, you know, what are the materials that historians work with to craft these narratives. Um, that's a good question. Uh, it's, if you just Google Beyond Freedom's Reach, okay, I'll, I'll put, uh, okay, my I'll name, Adam Rothman, um, should come in, up. In the description box uh, below. Thank you so much, and we must absolutely have you back again because there's so much. I feel like we could have gone for hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we only scratched the surface. No worries, no worries. I'm just happy to be able to talk Thank to you Thank you guys. so much. And I will send you the copy of the episode before we release it to the public, just so that you, you think everything's okay. Great, thanks so much. All right, good luck, take care. Thank you for listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and corporate media. To bring you these wonderful guests and program and the cost of producing and recording, we need your help. Please become a patron. It is as cheap as $5 a month and you get exclusive access to all our patron-only content. To become a patron, go to http colon slash slash www.patreon.com slash historic underscore Lee.